Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I am super excited to speak with our guest today. We're going to cover a broad range of topics focused largely on really the positive disruption of the healthcare industry, the importance of physician advocacy, which I'm really looking forward to discussing, and the issue of burnout. And without further ado, I'm just going to introduce our, our guest today, who's quite remarkable. His name is Todd Otten. He's a physician, board certified in family medicine and a co-founder of Our Quadruple Aim, a movement that challenges the status quo in healthcare. Todd has over 20 years of experience as a provider and has also been in numerous leadership positions, including within the United States Navy, where in 2006, he was honored as the Naval Flight Surgeon of the Year for the Atlantic fleet. I'm just gonna say thank you, Todd, for your service, and that's quite remarkable. Todd is also the co-author of the book, Ripple of Change, in which he shares his journey of burnout and also offers an approach to positively disrupt the healthcare industry. It's actually a very, very unique book in that he co-authored it with a patient. Quite remarkable, so excited to learn more about that. Todd is also an active leader in the Medicine Forward movement. Todd, so glad to speak with you today. How are you? I'm fantastic, and and thank you for the very kind and warm introduction. That that I'm, I'm you can't see me, but I, I'm blushing a little bit. Well, Todd, you and I we bumped into each other at a conference probably two or three months ago, the Patient Experience Symposium in Boston. And I'm kicking myself because we didn't have a chance to really talk that much during the conference, but I'm excited now to, to finally be able to speak with you. Todd, before we dive in, just tell us a little bit more about your background in terms of your clinical practice and how you got there and also your service in the Navy. For sure. So yeah, I graduated from medical school uh, 2002 and then actually did a year of general surgery to start at Portsmouth Naval Hospital because I thought I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. It was an interesting year. I really loved operating, but you know the culture around the, the training wasn't really for me. Uh, fortunately, I then transitioned into training to be a flight surgeon, which is a, quite a bit of a misnomer, really. It's, it's more of primary care for the squadron, the air crew, the pilots, navigators, et cetera. And I loved that. That was a fantastic part of my uh, career where it was like being in a family. I would go to get a cup of coffee and it would take me like an hour because <laughs> I would get interrupted walking down the hall with, with various inquiries and what have you. And then after I, I paid back my time to the Navy, I, I returned to Michigan and finished my residency in family medicine. And from there, I took on a job at a critical access rural hospital near Lansing, Michigan, and was there for really 13 years. And the majority of it was wonderful. For the better part of seven or eight years, I just had a wonderful time seeing patients. Um, I felt that joy that you really get, as I'm sure you're aware of, with when you see patients truly making a difference. Mm. Lots of leadership roles. But then in 2019, I got really burned out. And, and a lot of it was, frankly, my fault, I suppose, just trying to do too much. 
you know, chief of staff and, and all these other roles. And, and, oh, by the way, I was seeing like 6,000 visits a year. Wow. Fortunately, I had some time off and then I came back and um, I opened a new clinic and, and in the book, we, we call it the office utopia. And, and it really was, it was magical. We had three nurse practitioners and I won't dig into it too much, but uh, unfortunately some really poor administrative decisions were made and you know, having endured those over the years, there was one in particular at the end where I was in a position to to stand up, for not not only for myself and my family, but I felt like I was taking a stand for my colleagues. The short version of that story was, you know, one day they a couple of key administrators came in and told me they were going to move my clinic um, back to the town where I got really burned out, and I went home and I I told my wife and. She started crying and, you know, I had vowed that I wasn't going to get burned out again. And, and I said, that's it. This is a sign. We're not going to do this. And I, I literally resigned the next morning. And um, the beauty of all that and is it allowed me to, you know, finish working on the book and getting it out there. And now it's kind of this S, S curve of networking and, and meeting people such as yourself and really trying to make a difference. Yeah. Let's double click here for a second. In all the conversations I've had with folks who I would label as divergent, there's a why, there's a moment or perhaps a series of moments that sort of lead up to this divergence, this sort of like, this is not right and we need to do something different. I need to do something different. It sounds like you, that was one of your moments that you were just describing. Could you maybe double click on that and go back and and you know, the burnout you talked about, what was that about? Because I know we use the term, it, obviously there's a scientific descriptive of it and a, a few descriptives of it with a few characteristics in terms of depression and depersonalization and, and demotivation and disenfranchisement. And then there's also the issue of moral injury, which is a new term, which adopted from the military, where literally a person feels like what they were involved in what they did, what they observed, experienced, participated in, was morally injurious to them. And you've written about that. Could you share with us that series of events, that, that moral injury, that burnout? What what exactly was it? Like when you were told you had to go back, I, I mean, why couldn't you have just said, you know, no, I want to stay here? What is that series of moments where it was like, no, this is wrong? Absolutely. It, there was a lot that that built up to that point. When I went through burnout, it was, you know, frankly, Zev, it was all of the above. Hmm. I was depressed. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was tired of trying to battle insurance companies and powers that be to advocate for my patients to to get them the medicine that they needed or the test that they needed that was appropriate. And you know, I, I prided myself on being pragmatic and trying to do the right things and not overspending and be a good fiduciary and, and, and all those types of things. And the asks just never ended. It, it never ended. And it, it started to build and it became increasingly frustrated. And what happened in 2019 was literally we had a, a component of our contract uh, for citizenship. And two days a year, there was a clarification as to how many charts you had open or not. Uh, and I literally had two open charts when this occurred. Two, one, two. Wow. 
and and frankly, I couldn't close them. And a medical assistant had to, to click a button. And once once the medical assistant did, they they were closed. But a decision was uh, made to withhold some of my pay. Oh my god! As a result of that, you're kidding me. <laughs> I am not joking. Given the fact that you were seeing thousands and thousands, I think you mentioned six thousand visits here. Two charts is a joke, right? It's it's nothing. Like you said, it could be clicked and done within five minutes. Uh, that's egregious that someone actually responded to that. It's so insignificant. Yeah. And, and Zeb, actually, I think it took 60 seconds for the MA to close the charts, literally, from yeah. me asking them. But it was it was just unbelievable. So then I appealed it and it got pushed back. And mm -hmm. and I lost. I just lost it at that point. I resigned wow. as chief of staff. I, re I resigned every leadership position I had. Mm. except for the ACO medical director position that I did, because mm. I truly believed what they were doing was making a difference. Mm. And so at that point, the wheels were kind of falling off the bus. I was ready to just quit. No plan. Walk now, now, away. Wait a minute. Wait, but to me, again, this sounds like a final straw moment. And, and it's, I, I mean, I'm getting angry hearing it. And I'm sure any practitioner could completely relate to this. The bigger picture is, you know, you're seeing you're seeing patients day in and day out, like the vast majority of clinicians, putting your all into it, hours and hours each day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, bending over backwards to hold the system together and being conscientious and you know, spending hours after work, writing notes, all the things that providers do these days in a really dysfunctional system that is fragmented. And two charts, two charts that literally required the medical assistant to click off. And here you're getting doctor pay. I mean, that moment to me embodies so much of what needs to be changed in healthcare. It just, it is so, I mean, I'm getting angry as you could hear my voice. I'm getting frustrated. You've trained all these years and decades and this is what they do, right? And it's not just you, right? I mean, this is, I know it's not. It's just unbelievably remarkable. Were there any other moments, previous moments? What were the previous frustrations? What were these ridiculous, crazy things that happened that, that sort of led up to it be, You know, before this time? Was there another moment you could think of? Absolutely. So probably two to three months preceding that, um, the frustrations, you know, had been building lack of control over the office flow. Mm. And, and one day in particular, I, I was a little behind and I ran maybe 15, 20 minutes behind on average, which, you know, for physicians, not that bad, really, if you think about mm -hmm. it. Um, but one day I was probably closer to 30. And then all of a sudden this big gap developed as if somebody had a, there was a couple no shows or something. And then all of a sudden they, they, they roomed a patient you know, a young man with special needs, mm. um, English is a second language, you know, just all these confounding factors. And, and they put him, they brought him back, which I probably would have said yes anyways. But ultimately it put me like over an hour behind and of no fault of my own. And I, I saw the visit and then I had another difficult interaction after that. And I was so upset I literally walked out of the clinic for about an hour and went to talk to one of the VPs to calm down. You know, I finished out the day and saw the rest of the patients. But, you know, at that point, the warning signs were all over the place. And 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 had somebody asked me or just reached out, I think it might have had a different path, but but ultimately it didn't.
and and that was just one example of of multiple days of frustrations that really had nothing to do with what I was doing. It was all these external forces asking for this or checking these boxes or filling out these forms or, you know, just this administrative layer of garbage that is just ever increasing. Yeah. Now, again, just for context, some people may wonder, well, isn't that part of your job? And, and the answer is no. <laughs> right. I mean, what, what do you think about that? If someone asks you that question, uh, I mean, I know what I would say uh, based on the literature, one of which is that this would be like an executive in, in healthcare having to not only do their job, but actually spend hours after work recording every meeting in a compunctual way, following various templates and getting okays and permissions to have conversations. And as we know, as you know, the, the literature shows that for a primary care physician like yourself to do the job, it literally takes over 24 hours a day just to do the job. Forget about going home, forget about sleeping. The last study I saw was 26 hours a day. So the answer is no, this, this cannot be part of the job. There is no other profession. There's no other profession that would allow this to happen. And yet, you know, what you experienced, what I experienced with so many others experienced, this notion of moral injury too, this notion that I can't do my job. I can't take care of people the way I wanted to take care of them. For me, that was... That was my own personal experience, the biggest part as I was practicing. Yeah, yeah. there's examples in the book where I, I talk about, a, a, a would you want a pilot being the the refueler, the baggage handler, the steward or stewardess, you know, the ticket counter person or what have you? I mean, do you want them doing all those things at the same time they're flying the plane? No, of course not. Mm. In the book, I actually did a calculation of how many clicks I had so there were some estimations in there how many clicks I had done in an EMR electronic medical record at the time I burned out and it was about 18 million that's insane you know insane. it's so fr yeah it's insanity in fact jokingly wow. I, I had a, a friend to make a shirt for me that says MD equals professional box checker you know of course tongue-in-cheek but <laughs> there's some no. you know there's some validity to that you have your highest paid professionals being data entry people it's just totally. lunacy yes just lunacy i think you just named it it's lunacy and you know you and i are talking you are talking about your experience but i mean obviously you've written a book about this you know the literature i mean this is not confined to you i mean how big a problem this is across the industry across professionals providers Oh, oh, yeah, it's so it's everywhere, you know, and it goes top to bottom. Uh, the statistics range in the 60 percentage percentile, you know, recently, depending on who you cite. But I think the reality is there's a, a continuum here where it is everywhere. And I talk to my colleagues on a regular basis. And, and really, the scary part of it is the percentage of our of our colleagues that potentially would walk away from medicine as a result of this it's high and of course that's anecdotal evidence you know but many people are, are trapped by the golden handcuff if you mm -hmm. will and so they mm -hmm. they don't have the capacity to do that you know I, you you meant you talked about the the why mm. earlier and, and my burnout obviously was part of it but there's two other components to it that i think are very important in my career i've i've known three physicians who are no longer here as a result of suicide and, and, and one of those was my partner and it breaks my heart just thinking about it because he put it in a box and, and, and never talked about it. And frankly, I had no clue. And, and then he was gone. 
And the other part of my why is when I was still seeing patients, just the the daily frustrations of access to care or cost of care or having to choose between getting their medicine or buying food or paying their mortgage. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm not seeing patients actively, I still hear about this every day. Mm -hmm. I, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine who's a radiologist and, and just trying to get to the point to get an imaging study to determine the cause of his radicular symptoms. He's having a heck of a time, you know, and he did the physical therapy. He's tried the other modalities and he's a physician struggling to get the appropriate imaging study. So it, it, the frustrations are, they're just everywhere. Yeah. It's so bizarre to think this, but you and I are both casualties of the American healthcare system. I spent years and years, it, it was my dream to be a doctor and practice, and that's all I wanted to do. And after a few years, and I practiced for over 15 years, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't half day a week. It was, it was a substantial practice, some of it full-time, some of it part-time, but I'm a casualty. I left it because I, I could just couldn't do it. it. It wasn't concordant with what I thought I should be doing, what I thought I would be doing. And you're a casualty too. And what's interesting, I, I do think the numbers are showing that doctors and for, for instance, nurses, right? I, I read something recently that over one quarter of all the nurses that currently work today will, will not be working within three years, which is, I don't think people actually understand what the impact of that will be. You will not want to step foot in, in a hospital if one quarter of the nurses are gone because it's already a dire situation in terms of the safety issues. But you know what's worse is what I've, I'm reading now, and I was just about to look this up somewhere, that there was just a study of young physicians, and a significant percentage of them have no plan to go into practice. They're training to go into industry, to get the MD, even to get their residency training, and then to go do something else in technology or finance or investment or, or some other aspect of the industry, but not practice. And I, I think that's, that's a, a shameful commentary on the system. And, you know, I read another study where 80% of folks in practice would have 15 or 20 years of practice. 80% said they would not recommend this being a physician to their children. And I just contrast that with, think about those same people 20 years before, or, you know, or 25 years before when they're applying to medical school, no one goes into that process and says, you know, yeah, I don't want to practice. I mean, you go in and you give your right arm to be a doctor, right? I mean, that that's what you want to do or a nurse. And then 20 years later, the vast majority saying, I, I really don't think this is a good thing. It's really sad. And so before we move to some of what you're doing, because I think that's really hopeful and encouraging, if you can name some of the fundamental core issues in the healthcare. I mean, we've been talking a lot about burnout, but what is, in your mind, some of those those core issues that need to be identified and resolved? Well, I, frankly, I think the the financial drivers are a major problem right now. It is, in many instances, it is profits over people, and that is the opposite of what it should be. And this has led to a whole domino effect of lack of trust, you know, reducing the time physicians can actually spend with a patient down to, I think the average time is seven or eight minutes at this point. What can you really accomplish in seven or eight minutes? 
it's just insane. And so we, we've got to, we have to unwind that as the primary driver of healthcare delivery in the United States. And interestingly enough, I, I've been in instances where you can do that. You can put people over profits and, and it works. And, and, and frankly, that was a big inspiration to not only writing the book, but really the overarching theme in the book, which is our quadruple aim. Mm. And, and, and I might as well just say what yeah. that is. So yeah, for sure. So the, the first uh, component is patient experience. Mm -hmm. The second one is quality care. The third is lower costs. And in the book, we use the word provider wellness. And, and I realize there's some consternation from some, some of our colleagues around the word provider. So the way we offer it is substitute that out, use clinician, you know, healthcare worker, whatever you want to do. But in the end, we're all human beings, right? And we all deserve wellness. And so then we put the word our in front of it because we wanted to have that component of health equity. And the reality is when you take those four tenants, you know, think of it like a lens or maybe even a compass or a framework, if you will, when decisions arise or um, problems or what have you need to be addressed, when you consider those four components and make decisions as that, with that being your guiding light, the majority of stakeholders win. And I have seen this work, not only in the office setting, but when I was chief of staff, we, we really lived the quadruple aim at the time. And it was amazing. You know, the, and one of the most amazing parts of it Zev, was that not focusing on money all the time, we were busting at the seams with patients and ancillary testing. Why? Because we treated people how they were supposed to be treated. We treated them well, with respect, with dignity. And, and people pick up on that, right? And so you get customers for life. And even at the ACO level, albeit I didn't have, you know, intimate touch points with everybody, but I was the medical director and I talked about the quadruple aim all the time. And, and so I'm a big believer in that. And I think if we have more people adopt that, we can really start to move the needle, but it's going to have to be even at the highest levels. It's going to have to be with, with policy change and with legislation, et cetera. What would you say to people that would argue that, well, we've had the original quadruple aim from the Institute of Medicine for two decades now, can't believe that. And then people talk about the quintuple aim, which is adding physician wellness, a provider wellness to that, or clinician wellness, as you put it. How is this different than that? And again, when I talk to leadership in hospital systems, healthcare systems, insurance companies, et cetera. You know, everyone says, oh yeah, we're doing that. Thank you very much. How is what you're saying different in terms of our quadruple aim? Wonderful, wonderful point. And I, and I would agree with you. There's definitely been fits and starts with whether it was the triple aim or the quadruple aim or the quintuple aim, certainly. And there, you know, there's areas where it worked well, but it, it can't be lip service. It cannot be checking a box. And I think the reality is we need clinicians and patients activated and demanding change. We can't be quiet. We can't be sitting in the shadows and just trying to do our thing. We have got to be the voices for change. And, and that's a big part of what Medicine Forward is doing. And, and actually, there's lots of organizations that are, that are doing this. Medicine Forward currently is, is in a bit of a strategic pause as we're preparing for uh, 2024. But, but the reality is we want to consolidate and amplify 
not only the voices of physicians, but also patients. You know, if you get enough people to be noisy about issues, then we're really going to hopefully start to see some change occur. Mm-hmm. And so I think if, if, if we get enough people behind a movement, mm-hmm. whether it's Ripple of Change or, and I love your books, of, you know, Beyond the Walls, similar mm-hmm. concepts of, mm-hmm. of outside-the-box thinking and, and moving forward, yeah, we can do it. But, mm-hmm. but we have to get beyond this learned helplessness that exists everywhere. Mm-hmm. People have to have the courage, you know, to speak up. Yeah. I want to come back to that issue of the courage to diverge. And I love the ripple of change. I love the fact that you wrote a book. I love the fact that you wrote a book with a patient. Introduce us to that, that you co-authored this with a non-clinical person and who has a lot of experience as a patient, Josh Judy. And the whole issue of a movement or movements, I completely agree with you. So maybe it's bring us into the movement through the book. Absolutely. So Joshua uh, was my patient for, frankly, the whole time I was with my former employer. So over a decade. And when I was coming out of my burnout, I had started to write a little bit as, as catharsis. And the first thing I had written was a poem called Medicine is a World of Grey which is a dark poem, it really, you know, kind of looking at the reality of what goes on on a day-to-day basis in, in, in medicine. And Joshua was struggling. We had tried all kinds of things to get him some relief, including uh, duloxetine to try and help with the uh, neuropathic pain, which ironically enough, Sev, I take the exact same drug at the exact same dose, which is part of why I offered it to him. But he had a horrendous response from it, horrible side effects. And then when he came off it, it got even worse. And so frankly, I was running out of ideas to try and help him. Um, I knew there was a a deep problem. We thought maybe at like the receptor level of the cells, and and we don't need to get into that. And I knew I couldn't fix it. And I was struggling to get him to the right people to get help, you know, all the standard pushback and what have you. So one of the office visits, I told them about the book and what I had envisioned you know, in terms of the quadruple aim or our quadruple aim. And and Josh is a bright, articulate guy. And he seemed interested. And even though he didn't really know what the quadruple aim was, and he asked me, well, what what should I do? And I I said, just write. That's the only instructions I gave him. Mm. And he did. And it was really good. And then we had a meeting talking about the project. And this concept of yin and yang came up. And we, and we sat there and, and we thought, well, how amazing would it be to go back and forth from the physician's perspective to the patient's perspective and looking at some of the exact same issues from the other side of the fence or opposite side of the coin, if you will. And from there, it just the, the project just kind of took on its own life. And we were just trying to keep up with it, frankly. The ideas were just so plentiful and we would bounce things back and forth with one another and 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 that's how it evolved and 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 the 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 beauty of it is it really showed the power of one plus one Mm. equaling way more than two Mm. had you asked me a few years ago i I, you know i've always wanted to write a book but if you had asked me a few years ago they would actually come to fruition and not only come to fruition but co-author with now a friend and one of my former patients and oh, by the way, trying to inspire dramatic change, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But I think that speaks to that that power of one plus one being mm-hmm. like 20 or 100. 
And so the title actually came from Joshua and his wife, Megan. I was kind of stuck on our quadruple aim being in there somewhere. And, and Josh kept saying, you know, a lot of people aren't going to know what that means. And, and so finally he wore me down and, and frankly, I don't remember if it was he or I, that came up with a title, but when it, when we came up with it, it was like, that's it. That is it. If everybody throws a pebble into the, the pond mm. of healthcare dysfunction, mm. it's going to start to get, mm. get big, you know, and imagine if a million people threw a pebble in, right? Yeah. You know, then all of a yeah. sudden we've got a tsunami. What does that look like? The ripple of change movement. What's your experience of it? What has happened so far? What are you doing with Joshua and others to, you know, create the movement, to to foster the movement? And what are people within it doing? What are those those little pebbles being thrown in? What are those ripples of change so far? Wonderful, wonderful question. And and it can be as I'm gonna give a couple layers to this answer if that's okay. So, for example, one one pebble, if you will, was how Joshua interacted with his new physician. His new physician was um, typing away on the EMR and recording some things and what have you. And at one point during the interaction, Joshua said, so how was your day going? And the physician stopped what they were doing, looked up and said, no one's ever asked me that. And the interaction completely changed. And certainly it added some more time and there was a bond that was created there. And so that's just a, a small example, if you will. When I talk about Medicine Forward, it, it, it's getting bigger and we're gaining traction. Currently, there's about 400 members uh, in the organization. And for a nonprofit operating on a, a shoestring budget, that's not too bad. And we've done two town halls uh, in the past three to four months, I suppose. Uh, one with uh, Dr. Gabriel Boslett uh, from Indiana U University, who started the Good Trouble Coalition to do advocacy work at the uh, state legislature level. That was a fantastic discussion. And he, he offered assisting others around the country with the framework that they had developed. And within days, somebody had already reached out for assistance. So there's another ripple, right? Um, we did a town hall with uh, Aaron Goodman, who is a hematologist oncologist out on the West Coast who created a petition to really disrupt maintenance of certification. Hmm. And he got 20,000 signatures in a month. Wow. One month. I mean, that's incredible. And so with Medicine Forward, we're looking to amplify those voices and consolidate them and take it even further as, as we grow and mature. But there's other organizations out there. Um, for example, Remote Area Medical. I was had the the pleasure of being interviewed regarding that documentary around Stan Brock and the work that he did to create that entity. And remote area medical serves people without insurance, and they've served millions of people over the past thirty years. Um, you know, all out of um, donations and what have you. It, it it begs the question: Why why does this exist in the United States? Mm -hmm. Todd, what is that? What is the name of that again? Remote. Medical. Yeah, sure. It, it's uh, RAM for short. Remote Area Medical is the name of it. Just a wonderful organization. And what does it do? Sure. They literally will, will get a, um, a mobile clinic, if you will, and they'll set up a camp, I, I guess you could describe it. And they'll take numbers and deliver 
dental care, uh, eye care, and medical care over the course of a weekend to literally thousands of people for free. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is going on in the, the, the United States. And it begs to the question, like, how well is our system really working hmm. if we're having to have these entities out there delivering free care? And so the real interesting part of this, Ev, is there are a lot of these wonderful organizations out there. I think the key, one of the keys is going to be connecting the dots yeah. and uniting these voices so that they, they, they literally can't be ignored. And there's some other uh, groups out there working on that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Global Health Impact Network hmm. is it's been around for four or five years, I want to say, hmm. and they're quickly growing a network of networks uh, that seemingly is looking to really challenge the status quo as well. So it's exciting. And, and this kind of stuff, hmm. Zev, it fills me up every day. And mm-hmm. so every day I'm fired up to talk to people and then shout, you know, you know, shout the words of encouragement for change. What a great great picture. And I love, even in this conversation where we we spend some time talking about burnout and, and profit over people and, and some of the really just core realities, dismal, dire realities of our healthcare system. And yet now, I love the fact that you've, you've pivoted. And again, being a casualty of the system, being an injured soldier, so to speak, to use a metaphor, and you've taken that and created something positive and generative and just absolutely beautiful with it. And, and I love your notion of connecting, of identifying groups and movements out there that are doing this work, increasingly more and more of them, creating awareness, connecting them. It's almost like a meta movement. So is this notion of medical forward, is that the vehicle? Is that the, the organization that is promoting the ripple of change? Is that, or, or what's the relationship between the ripple of change and, and that? That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. That's been sort of this organic evolution really in the last six months mm. uh, since the book came out. I've gotten to be very close and good friends with one of the co-founders, uh, Gabe Charbonneau. Uh, and there was a few other very notable co-founders of the group as well. Eric Topol was one of them. Emily Silverman was another. And, and there were four or five others. Um, and so Gabe has kept this organization running for the last three or four years really as an army of, of one or maybe two or three, depending on the time. But in the last four to five months, our, our little meetings have gone from two or three or four people showing up to five to seven mm-hmm. to 10 to, mm-hmm. you know, 30 at these town halls and the energy's there. Mm-hmm. So in 2024, there's a few things that we're anticipating as a result of this. Um, one is I, I currently do a podcast called The Ripple of Change, and we're going to do a little bit different spin on it. Uh, Joshua, my co-author, is stepping back a little bit because he works full time and he's got two little children. Mm-hmm. So instead, what we're going to do is really have guest co-hosts, uh, many of whom are uh, involved with Medicine Forward, to interview a third guest. So sort of the zany different approach to highlighting people doing wonderful things. So that's just one example of trying to get the message out there even further. And there's a few other things that are kind of cooking behind the scenes, but I I don't want to get ahead of myself too much and usurp some of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's exciting. And, and, you know, the really cool part of it, Zev, is, is when we tell people about the organization, they come to a meeting, they, they just light up. Yeah. You know, you can see it. They're like, 
oh my gosh, there are people out there that are trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. And it's empowering. And the more that feel empowered to go back to their institution and advocate for themselves, their patients, and their colleagues, and not just accept some of the stuff that comes down the pipeline, that that to me just, it gives me goosebumps talking about it. Yeah, it's so encouraging. And one question here, the question I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do as well, when I'm out speaking or talking about this meta movement, if you will, is the question of what can I do, right? And it's remarkable that I hear that not only from you know nurses and doctors and, and other administrators and managers in healthcare, but I hear it also from executives. And it's the sense that the industry is just so overwhelmingly large and difficult to navigate and difficult to change. In fact, one, one young, amazing physician leader, also in family medicine, said to me a few months, it feels like trying to turn an aircraft carrier with a bunch of paddles, which I thought was, wow, that's exactly how it feels, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's exactly how it feels. And, and I thought, well, yeah, but that's the point. We need, we need to get the folks at the helm. I think this is your ripple of change. We need to get the entire crew, the entire fleet, including those at the helm, to see where we are, to see where we're going in terms of the, you know, just unsustainability, which is, is not just looming, it's already here. And to see the tragedy of this and to make the course correction based on that reality. And to me, it seems like that's where you're going with it. That's the energy, that's momentum. And I've got obviously got a lot more to say about that, but I'm, you've been talking a lot about and writing a lot about physician advocacy. And so what, what would you say to a physician or a nurse or any other person in healthcare, administrator, manager, you know, C-suite person, what would you say about what can I do? How would you respond? Wonderful, wonderful thoughts. And I think simply, if I had to say something, it would be do something. If we all do a little bit, it starts to add, be a very additive thing. And I talk about with Medicine Forward, the gifts of time, talent, or treasure, okay? Perhaps you're in a situation where you don't feel comfortable being vocal or advocating. Maybe make a small donation to a group that is mm. and has that courage to do something. Maybe it's $5. You know, all those all those little efforts can add up to massive infrastructure changes over time. This isn't going to happen, you know, tonight, tomorrow, next week, next year. But over the course of the coming years, if we have enough people, I mean, there are 330 million people in this country. And a, a vast majority of them have frustrations associated with our healthcare delivery and if 330 million people start speaking up and or voting for people that they think are going to make policy changes that benefit patients and not industry or pharmaceutical companies, that's something that they, that everyone can do. So I, I feel like everyone can play a part and we need to get the, that, that understanding and that education out there 
which is part of the reason why I'm so vocal about this. What would you say you're standing in front and you may have already been in the situation and I'm, I hope, and I, I'm sure you're going to be in the situation. You're standing in front of an audience of hospital insurance company, pharmaceutical manufacturers, C-suite folks. What's your message to them? It's interesting you ask that because I'm actually in the process of developing a keynote called The Power of One Plus One. Hmm. And it's going to revolve around our quadruple aim and the components associated with it. I would advocate for whether it's the quadruple aim, the quintuple aim, or our quadruple aim being the lens with which decisions are made. And when you do that, the majority of stakeholders win. The current modus operandus of the few individuals at the top reaping tremendous rewards and those at the bottom struggling to make ends meet has got to change. And frankly, I think the institutions that do this and follow those four simple tenets are going to be successful. You know, and anecdotally, I've seen it work at, at, at multiple levels. So that would be my suggestion. Take a look at our quadruple aim. It is eight words. Dive into it a little bit, understand it, and go for it. You're going to be very surprised, I think, with the results. Mm. Todd, where can people access Medicine Forward and our quadruple aim? Absolutely. So... Real easy to remember this because it's medicineforward.org. And, you know, there's a capacity to join there, capacity to donate there if you so desire. In terms of our quadruple aim, it's literally ourquadrupleaim.com. Uh, the books of it, Ripple of Changes, available there. And it's also available on Amazon, Google Play, and, and Barnes and Noble, what have you. If you're trying to get a hold of me, mm -hmm couple ways. LinkedIn is where I'm most active uh, in terms of a social media platform, but I am on Facebook and I am on X or formerly known as Twitter as well. Todd, my mind is racing. I've been taking notes and there's so much more to talk about, but let's leave it here now. I know we we're almost at the top of the hour. I am so grateful to you and to your colleagues and to the all the other people you've mentioned and the movements you've mentioned for what they're doing. This medicine forward, this ripple of change is so important to all of us. I mean, to the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans and quite honestly, globally. So thank you for what you've been doing. Before I close out, anything you want to add here or say that we haven't covered that you think is important? Absolutely. I think it's so important that whether you're a nurse, administrator, dietitian, physician, if you're not well, you're not going to be able to give your best to others. Please, please look for help. Ask for help. It is out there. So I want everybody to, that, that would be a key takeaway from me is please, please remember self-care. What an important message. Thank you, Todd. And, and Todd, as, as I do every episode, I conclude by thanking all the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients 
and those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients, you know, building on what Todd just said, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, to families, to communities, and to our society. My friends, this is Zev Neuwirth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be well.